Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Connor Freeman. Connor is with the Libertarian Institute. He is also featured on antiwar.com often. He is a libertarian anti-war activist. He works closely with Scott Horton, uh, who I've had on the show previously a couple different times. For those of you who don't know, a big part of the libertarian platform is being anti-war. Just a few weeks ago, you could argue the actual libertarians took over the National Libertarian Party, uh, called the Mises Caucus, is now in control of the National Libertarian Party, led by Michael Heiss, Angela McCardle. Uh, Dave Smith is probably the uh, face or the voice even of the Mises Caucus, which once again is now the National Libertarian Party. We are hoping Dave Smith will run for president in 2024. Anyone who's listening to this episode, I have a specific call to action that I would like for you to do. I know Connor would agree with me on this. Um, In today's episode, we are covering quite a a few different foreign policy uh, topics, but my specific call to action is I would like everyone who's listening to contact your congressman. Um, You can call 833-STOP war. You can also visit visit 833stopwar.com. Um, but if you call 833stopwar anytime during regular business hours, then you put I believe your zip code in and they will immediately contact you with, you know, for me here in Louisville, Kentucky is John Yarmouth. Uh, anywhere you're at in the country, they'll contact with you with your congressman and what I need you to do is tell them that you support the War Powers Resolution. That is H.J. Res 8-7. It was introduced by a congressman from Oregon, Peter DeFazio, and it's supported by Thomas Massey. Um, They are, of course, um, both anti-war activists. DeFazio is actually a member of the Democratic Party, and Thomas Massey, of course, a Republican. So I don't care who you vote for. You can be a a Trump supporter. You can uh, be a Libertarian Party supporter. You can be a, a Biden supporter. I don't care. But if you like the idea of ending unnecessary foreign wars, please contact your congressman and ask to end the military involvement by the United States in Yemen. It's an absolutely horrible situation in Yemen right now. And if you're not aware of it, I encourage you to, I don't know, do a YouTube search, Google it, Uh, CNN or Fox News, they have no incentive to cover this. Uh, so you don't hear about it, but it's absolutely horrible. The starvation and the mass, I guess you could say genocide, uh, that's happening in Yemen right now. So once again, go to 833stopwar.com and or call 833-STOP-WAR. Get in contact with your congressman and tell them you support H.J. Res. So that's H-J-R-E-S-8-7 which means you support the United States withdrawing their support to Saudi Arabia in Yemen. And what that means is we would be an anti-war. You're supporting uh, um, the end to the mass murder of people from the poorest country in the Middle East, which once once again is Yemen. Sorry to be long-winded to start the episode, uh, 
Today, I once again was joined by Connor Freeman. Really enjoy him coming on. Hope to have him on sometime again soon. I appreciate everyone tuning in to The Kelly Patrick Show. If you're a fan of the podcast, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. We're going to head to the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster line where I am joined by Connor Freeman of the Libertarian Institute. Connor also does a lot of work with antiwar.com. Connor, how are you today? I'm doing great, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate you joining me today. Um, I say this, you know, I'm like a broken record over and over again. The Kelly Patrick Show is originally started in 2017 as a regional MMA or, or really a combat sports podcast. Of course, through the past couple of years, I've become somewhat radicalized and started to learn more new things about kind of like the libertarian perspective on different things. But I guess my point is, I'm still very new to all this, and one of the fascinating parts of the libertarian perspective on things is, of course, foreign policy. Foreign policy for the libertarians oftentimes differentiates them not only from the Democrats, but also big time from the Republicans. Um, so I appreciate you joining me. If it's all right, Connor, could you give an introduction to the Kelly Patrick Show listeners? Who's Connor Freeman? How'd you get involved with the Libertarian Institute, with Antiwar.com, with Scott Horton? What brought you to this point? Okay, so, uh, yeah, so um, basically when I, uh, I mean, I'm, a, I'm really a, a child of the 9-11 era. So I lived in Massachusetts. Uh, and when, when nine 11 happened, I was like four years old and, uh, or five years old maybe. And, um, and I was coming back. I remember very clearly like coming back home from kindergarten and everything and, and seeing, uh, my mom's eyes glued to the TV screen and not really understanding what was going on. And then growing up in just the climate of fear and paranoia and propaganda and, you know, kind of growing up in the era of like Fox news and things like this. And, 
and, and being very, you know, hateful and, and kind of, I mean, not me personally, maybe, but certainly existing in that, in that kind of space, that atmosphere of, uh, anti, um, Muslim sentiment and, and, and fear of Arabs and all this stuff. And, uh, and really kind of absorbing a culture that was being dominated by, you know, neoconservatism and this kind of, you know, this ultra hawkishness that was enveloping, uh, the United States at the time. And, uh, so long story short, I mean, I, part of this might've been part of my fear and, and sort of willingness to kind of, as a young man, go along with this kind of stuff was due to the fact that uh, my dad was supposed to be on flight 175 of, uh, you know, that, that flew into the South Tower in New York on 9-11 and changed his plans, thankfully, a couple of weeks ahead of time. But nevertheless, I think just overall, the, the climate really affected me. So uh, when I, you know, I got a little older and, and I, you know, at first I was like, well, you know, maybe I should, you know, I the hell with this Republican stuff. Maybe I'll be a Democrat, whatever. And, uh, I think that lasted for like a couple of months in high school. And I was like, this is basically the same thing. I don't like it. And, uh, I came across a great comedian who's, uh, dead now, but his name is Bill Hicks. And, uh, one of the biggest influences on myself, um, and my sort of, uh, development, uh, and evolutions or politically and philosophically. And he was the first guy I ever heard talk about the military industrial complex. And he was calling out Bush the elder for his war in Iraq and, uh, for being such a, for being such a hawk and such a shill for the uh, military, um, for the weapons industry in particular. And, uh, and he was talking about, you know, legalizing drugs and all kinds of stuff and, and just looking at society and, 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 uh, you know, freedom in a very different way than I had been accustomed to. And so that kind of threw me for a loop. But then I quickly found people like Dave Smith and Tom Woods uh, and, uh, and, and, and Ron Paul and Dan McAdams and, and Scott Horton. And long story short, I basically went from being very into like the Mises Institute kind of style of, of, of uh, libertarianism, reading about Austrian economics that I still love and, and great historians like Tom and Murray Rothbard and people like this. And then uh, at some point, I remember maybe it was just Dave having Scott on his show a lot or... Um, or I just came across the Scott Horton show itself. But then I started reading antiwar.com and before I knew it, I got hooked because it's one of the, it seemed to be, it was the, it was the, the site I kept coming back to, uh, to read, especially their news columns and their viewpoints every day and, or their news. Um, basically they, they have a series of news articles that they run every single day that are written by Jason Ditz and Dave DeCamp. And now, my uh, partners, uh, Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter at the Institute, and Kyle also works for antiwar.com, but, you know, these terrific news articles that they cover basically everything going on around the empire. And uh, it's, a, it's, I mean, antiwar.com as far as foreign policy goes is, is and now our institute as well with, our new, with uh, the, news con- the news section that Kyle and Will have. But uh, the reason I was so drawn to antiwar.com was because it was simultaneous, simultaneously comprehensive and rigorous, but also very accessible. So it was a terrific uh, way for me to get involved. And then before I knew it, I just started writing. Cause I've always been, uh, you know, a talent, I had a talent for writing and that was, uh, my way of, you know, getting involved in the movement was writing about foreign policy. And especially when I got into all this, I remember seeing just, uh, how 
the Yemen, uh, there was a, a bill, uh, Put in uh, introduced in the Senate called H. Conres 81, and this was back in late 2017. And this uh, was basically the war a war powers resolution, which is what we're seeing now with H. J. Res uh, 87. Um, but it was basically the same thing. They were trying to cut off U.S. support for the war in Yemen using the War Powers Act, which you know guarantees uh, a floor vote, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, and. Uh, but I actually watched the process from following that story to see Steny Hoyer and House leadership uh, basically sabotage that that legislation, preventing its guaranteed floor vote um, by uh, doing a rules committee vote, if I remember correctly, ahead of it, ahead of it, and suggest saying that yeah, you know, well, you know, uh, the U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen doesn't constitute actual involvement in hostilities or war which is probably some of the arguments um, you're going to be hearing here pretty soon uh, from the opposition, from the Hawks, I should say. And, uh, and I actually watched them like literally d- 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 sabotage the deal, which, which would the, the, excuse me, the bill, which meant uh, at the, you know, now there's a ceasefire in Yemen and we can get into that. But what that meant at the time, you know, we were st- still refueling, the Saudis jet fighters that were bombing civilian sites all over Northern Yemen and, and, and imposing and the U S Navy was, uh, you know, supporting the blockade and all of this. And so what that meant in practice was they were not only acting unconstitutionally and pursuing another illegal war, they were, uh, completely undermining the war powers act, preventing Congress from doing for once doing its job and actually ending an unconstitutional legal war. Not only were they doing all of that, not only was this war treasonous and in support of Al Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula uh, and ISIS for that matter, but they were actually continuing a genocide, which was, you know, the, the worst and still is the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And so I think that really affected me. There were a few other things I learned about foreign policy that really changed me, but, and got me into all this, but that was one of the main ones was seeing for one thing, what the U S power elite, the military, uh, and the Hawks are capable of essentially to, to, uh, maintain regional hegemony and to make money for weapons contractors. And that really hasn't changed. That's still obviously, I mean, you know, that's still the the purpose of the war in Yemen for, for all intents and purposes. But, uh, that was uh, that was a real revelation. Was to see that they could kill hundreds of thousands of people, mostly children, and do it for to make you know billions of dollars for defense contractors and uh, to maintain the relationship with Saudi Arabia, which is a essentially a totalitarian dictatorship. So all of that got me uh, writing for the institute, and then I took a little bit of a break and came back in late 2020 and started writing regularly for them, and then. Kyle uh, Anslone and I got together and we started recording shows uh, regularly for conflicts of interest. And then I became the co-host of the show at the end of last year and got brought on to the Institute uh, full time and uh, just became the assistant editor. And so uh, it's been great. I've been working with uh, that team ever since. And they're, in my opinion, the best writers and podcasters in the whole libertarian movement. And, uh, you know, it's just an incredible group of guys over there and gals. Lori Calhoun uh, is brilliant as well. And she's 
our uh, senior research fellow and writes an unbelievable regular column over there. Okay. Um, so sometimes when we get into foreign policy, especially for me, being that I'm kind of mentally slow, and then also a lot of the, the listeners of the Kelly Patrick show, if this is completely new to them, um, you, turn, you tune into a Scott Horton podcast episode and it can be a little intimidating to really follow what's going on. No, if you know, he, he's the best in the business. He's like the, the Michael Jordan of anti-war talk. Um, but to listen to it sometimes can be a little overwhelming. And, and so if it's all right, uh, Connor, what I'd like to do is go through, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Wikipedia and there's a list of wars involving the United States. Now, we could go all the way back through the history of the United States. But for the sake of today's episode, I would like to focus on from 2001 through 2022. So if it's all right, I will mention what Wikipedia says. You chime in with your uh, uh, summary and, and uh, relevance to today for each one and, and whatever it is that I or the Wikipedia narrative is leaving out. Is that okay? Yeah. Well, uh, if you just uh, tell me the uh, the war, I can go. I can run through. We can discuss that. And uh, yeah, whatever, whatever works. That's that's cool. Great. So, uh, according to Wikipedia, the war in Afghanistan started in two thousand one. It went from two thousand one through. Tw- Actually, let me make sure I said yeah. From from two thousand one through twenty twenty one. Of course. Joe Biden ended it, got a lot of shit from Republicans. Uh, foreign policy is funny because no matter what the Republicans do, the Democrats always act like they would have done the exact opposite and then vice versa. So it's difficult to follow really what happened. But what is your abbreviated summary of what happened with the war in Afghanistan all the way up from 2001 through 2021? Okay, so... Uh Okay, so after 9-11, okay, so 9-11 was essentially a retaliation on behalf of, uh, well, I, I shouldn't, okay, it was blowback, right, uh, unintended consequences of long-term uh, foreign policy, uh, long-term unintended consequences of mostly unknown foreign policies, at least for the, for the American, from the perspective of the American population who thought this came out of the clear blue sky, as Ron Paul would say. Uh, but ultimately, these were formerly U.S.-backed uh, Arab uh, insurgent fighters from from uh, operate leftover from Operation Cyclone, which was the whole you know CIA dirty war launched by guys like Brz- uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. Essentially, the idea was that if we bait the uh, Soviet Union into overexpansion we can bleed them dry in uh, Afghanistan and uh, that could really hurt them because it, you know, the American people didn't want to fight after Vietnam did not want to fight any more wars to contain uh, you know, Soviet communism and to contain the uh, USSR. So what instead, instead what they decided was that they would sign a CIA finding in the middle of 1979 in the summer. Uh, and by December uh, I believe on Christmas Eve of 1979, uh, Moscow invaded uh, Afghanistan. And uh, then at that point, the U.S., the Saudis, and the Pakistanis, who had already been backing this, the Mujahideen fighters there, began to really ramp up their support and uh, basically drew them into what they called their own, the Soviets' own Vietnam. That was the idea. 
and so a million people were killed. But what ultimately came out of that uh, was you had about roughly 100,000 foreign fighters from the Middle East and even from, in some cases from America itself traveling there uh, to fight a holy war against, uh, against the uh, Soviet communists. But over there, they, they developed all kinds of logistical and ideological ties. And so you see veterans of that war going back home to all these different countries throughout the Middle East. Um, and uh, one of the main consequences was you had basically, well, Osama bin Laden took over a group that was run by a guy named Abdullah, uh, Abdullah Zam. And it was called the Afghan Services Bureau. And this guy was one of the leading sort of recruiters uh, for, the, for the holy war against uh, the USSR. And um, when bin Laden took over that group, he merged with a guy named Ayman al-Zawahiri's group, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, in the early 90s. And they started attacking U.S. Um, they started attacking U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there was the National Guard, Saudi National Guard bombings. There was the Kobar Towers attack where they killed, I believe, 19 U.S. airmen in their barracks. Um, they attacked, obviously, the the famous um, dual embassy attacks in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and uh, Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, and all of these attacks were justified based on the idea that, well. So you occupy the Arabian Peninsula and you have uh, troops all over our Holy Land. You back Israel and their, and their apartheid rule over the Palestinians and, the, and all this violence against uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza. Uh, you've inva- they've invaded southern Lebanon with your full support uh, and uh, you give them billions of dollars in military aid and, and 20,000 people had died in the war in southern Lebanon. And also, critically, the Americans after the first Iraq war, which is a story in and of itself, um, that war didn't have to happen uh, either. And there's even, you could argue if you wanted to, that the U.S. policy was so uh, unclear that if Saddam might have misinterpreted different signals he was getting, particularly from George H.W. Bush's State Department, that he should just he could, we could go ahead and invade Kuwait because they had a dispute over um over uh, the Romalia oil field where he felt that uh, the uh, Kuwaitis were taking much more uh, oil than they were allowed to under their already high uh, OPEC uh, oil production quotas. And they weren't negotiating with him partly because central command and the CIA were the, the Americans were telling them on the one hand, not to negotiate telling them on the one hand, not to negotiate. uh, And then, you had the state department basically telling him we, we take, you know, when he was telling them, look, I might have to do something about this. I go, yeah, we don't, you know, we don't really take a position here. That's, we don't get involved in your Arab Arab conflict. So go ahead. I mean, they didn't say go ahead, but that was the implication. And, um, anyway, so there was a war, there was the uh, war, uh, with Iraq to expel them from Kuwait and they killed tens of thousands of people and destroyed the country, bombed all their critical infrastructure, uh, electricity, oil, uh, transportation services, um, and they put uh, the country under a full blockade, essentially, a, a global embargo. And that killed hundreds of thousands of people, and they bombed the country probably three to four times every week uh, with under the U.S., Britain, and France declared a no-fly zone. And this was a major recruiting point for bin Laden. 
So uh, Bin Laden's whole thing was they're murdering uh, our people, the Ummah, the greater Muslim community, uh, these Arabs in Iraq. And, uh, and of course they support Israel and they've done, and they have bases all over our Holy land. And those were the main grievances also support for all these dictators that they wanted to overthrow. And that was their main ultimate goal. So the whole point of nine 11, uh, was to draw the Americans into invading the region outright, but particularly Afghanistan to replicate the strategy where the CIA had previously backed guys like bin Laden and Zawahiri specifically in order to do just that to the Soviets. He wanted to now do this to the Americans to bleed them to the point of bankruptcy so that they would leave the region where they would no longer be able to back the, the dictatorship in, uh, in Cairo or in Riyadh so they could just, you know, overthrow their dictators and create eventually their own, you know, Islamic state. So what happened after 9-11 was the Taliban, who were not allies of bin Laden, they said... Well, they offered, first of all, they said, if we can see evidence that, um, that, that bin Laden was involved in this attack, we, would, we will hand him over to uh, another, and, you know, another Muslim country. And uh, the Americans said, nope, no negotiations. You're not getting any, uh, you're not getting any evidence. And they said, well, okay, well, if you give us more evidence, we'll hand him over to the Pakistanis. And uh, then that didn't work either. So then after... America started bombing Afghanistan on, uh, in early October of 2001. They said, we'll hand them over to any third country. We don't need to see evidence. And that wasn't good enough. So the Americans went into Afghanistan. They, it's a long story, but there's a, there's a whole, uh, there was a, basically the Americans had the uh, Delta force and the CIA paramilitaries had bin Laden and his, there were only like a few hundred guys in Al Qaeda when, when the war on terror started and they were all hiding essentially basically in Tora Bora uh, in Nangarhar province in far Eastern Afghanistan near the border with Pakistan. So they had these guys cornered and uh, they called in the air force and heavy bombers uh, and they, and they bombed the place. But what they really needed were Rangers and Marines who were plentiful already in Afghanistan at Bagram air base and in Kandahar province in uh, the southern part of the country and this, and up in the North, uh, there were green berets fighting the Taliban. All of this could have, all these uh, men could have been used for an action for an operation to do a block and sweep maneuver and prevent bin Laden and Zawahiri from escaping uh, and, and getting away. And this was in December and ultimately George W. Bush and Dick Cheney refused to provide those reinforcements. Uh, and once even though they had deals worked out with the Pakistanis for contingencies for them crossing the border to prevent, you know, friendly fire and, uh, and also to, you know, to do something about it, to stop these guys, if they got over there, um, if they got across the border, uh, it didn't, it didn't matter. They didn't, they didn't support the operation at all. Um, even, uh, the, the CIA station chief for, uh, the war in Afghanistan at that time, Henry Crumpton laid out a map in the Oval Office and told Bush and Cheney, look, here's where the Delta Force and our paramilitaries are. We're working with these Eastern Alliance warlords. We need your help here. Uh, you've already got the Army Rangers. You control the Bagram Air Base. And at the time of Trump's first uh, Defense Secretary General, James Mattis, had uh, thousands of Marines ready to go for this. Uh, and he, wanted, he says he wanted to, but was turned down. They, they all said no. 
so bin Laden got away, but that was, you know, you could, it's pretty obvious looking at it, uh, especially since some of the rhetoric from Bush, uh, as early as March, 2002, that they really were not focused on him at all. And, uh, really they preferred to have him out there, uh, as sort of this Emmanuel Goldstein character, like from 1984 to just always be there as a permanent threat to the American people who, you know, we're always worried that there could be like an anthrax attack or they could, you know, again, that was, that's also another very strange incident, but this idea that we have an ongoing threat that justifies basically fighting any war, the neoconservatives and the liberal interventionists want to fight from now on, particularly in that region. But, but ultimately in Afghanistan, they launched a war against the Taliban. So they, they didn't have to do that. Even if they wanted to bomb the Taliban and, and destroy their government in Kabul, they could have done that, but they didn't have to launch this regime change war. But ultimately what they did was they switched sides and they t- took the sides of who the Russians backed in the 1980s. These were the Northern Alliance uh, warlords. And these guys are basically communist drug, drug lords uh, and uh, war criminals uh, for, uh, you know, in the case of people like General Rashid Dostum, uh, who became the, the vice president and the defense minister and um, held, you know, obviously very high post. And so the war basically took all of those guys, uh, put those guys in power and then made, um, they, we, we basically made enemies out of all of their enemies, allies out of their allies and enemies out of their allies enemies. And, uh, after, and basically this went on for, for 20 years where, um, the U S I mean, the Taliban gave up essentially after the war. I mean, they, they retreated and, and basically there was no real targets uh, for America to go after. So they just started relying on, uh, they were just picking fights with whoever these warlords wanted to go after. And uh, there was all kinds of tribal uh, rivalries where people would say, you know, uh, you, well, I should point out that the Northern Alliance, these are ethnic minorities that, uh, from Northern Afghanistan the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Hazaras, and the Turkmen. And they uh, are, uh, they're not, I mean, the Pashtuns are the plurality of the country and they live in the predominantly, uh, the Pashtuns, uh, for all intents and purposes, are, are in the southern and eastern parts of the country. And they're, in, and they're indigenous and that's where they're from. And the Taliban uh, are not international terrorists at all. In fact, they are based, they were backed by the U.S. in the 1990s, uh, and, and the U.S. actually wanted to see them take Kabul, uh, so it's kind of interesting that they decided to switch sides uh, after 9-11 when they really didn't have to. Um, but long story short, uh, after years of basically people just uh, ratting out on each other and sending the U.S. military off against anybody they wanted them to fight, even, you know, just people who might be like a, you know, a rival, uh, a business, like a business competitor. I mean, it was that bad. Okay. So yeah. So the reason why, uh, the, uh, Pakistan was back in the Taliban was because their rival India was, uh, very involved with the U S supporting the government in Kabul, including having a, uh, pretty substantial military relationship with them, uh, arming them and, and, uh, and coordinating on all kinds of infrastructure projects and intelligence and things like this. Um, selling them Russian helicopters and, and, uh, so basic and training them. And, and so Pakistan views Afghanistan as their sort of 
um, their their area to retreat uh, in the event of a nuclear war with India, a nuclear war with India. So um, the they would not allow for their government to go over the Khyber Pass and, and, and seek protection in a situation like that. So their government would not, it was in their interest, their vital national security interests to ensure that Kabul never established a uh, monopoly on force throughout the country. Not to say that they could, but they wanted to make sure that the Taliban had safe haven over the border and that they could support them, particularly in that way, but also in order to, you know, prevent Kabul from really taking over the whole country. And so now on top of all this, one of the other uh, reasons uh, for the war is because there is, uh, I mean, well, Afghanistan borders Iran, and uh, it's right in Russia's, uh, you know, uh, sphere of influence. It has a small border with China. They wanted to uh, have a major uh, military garrison and foothold out in this in um, as in Central Asia as their sort of pivot pivot point to controlling uh, Eurasia because you know one of the main and this is sort of you know Zbigniew Brzezinski and and foreign policy of uh, you know, hawks uh, have this, you know, basically they, what they are looking for is American hegemony. But when the neoconservatives came in, the major change, I would argue, is uh, instead of sort of playing the Russians and the Chinese off against each other, uh, like Nixon and Kissinger did, uh, what they have done is they've decided to go against both at the same time. And so that was arguably a big part of why uh, they wanted to be in Afghanistan, and um, and so uh, so then again, so when Obama came into office, uh, the whole argument was that Bush had squandered the war in Afghanistan. He had uh, neglected the war in Afghanistan and devoted too many resources to the war in Iraq. And so Obama came in, launched uh, the surge with David Petraeus that was agitated for by uh, all these uh, neoconservative hawks. Um, and uh, think tankers and generals and people like John McCain. And they came in and uh, basically doubled down on what they called the counterinsurgency doctrine. Uh, with, uh, with, with, they basically failed completely. All they did was kill thousands of more uh, civilians and lose thousands of more American and allied troops. And uh, they never took Helmand province. They never took Kandahar province. These are the, the heavily uh, Taliban-controlled provinces. They didn't control the capital cities, but uh, you know, virtually all of the countryside in, in the south and the east. Uh, the Taliban only became stronger in response to these. Uh, in response to the surge, uh, Donald Trump uh, came in. Now, I should just point out that they were drone bombing uh, people based on uh, you know what they call link analysis, and so basically just based off of like cell phone SIM card data. They were just going, well, this person is talking to this person. He's talking to this person. He's talking to that person. Let's, you know, kill them all because they all must be connected to some guy who we think is Taliban. And uh, it led to all kinds of civilian casualties. Uh, the war was absolutely uh, horrible. If you look at, I believe the cost of war project says between Afghanistan and Pakistan, because Obama concurrently launched a drone war in Pakistan against a group of what they call Pakistani Taliban, which is a different group. They're called the Tariqi Taliban, and they're the enemies of uh, the government in Islamabad. Uh, they, um, 
they launched a drone war there. They killed tens of thousands of people again, where they were just naming anybody who gets killed under these, uh, under Obama's drones as enemies killed in action. So long as they're military age males and they're traveling in groups. And if, as long as nobody proves that they were innocent then they're presumed or then they're presumed guilty. And, you know, it's just another notch on our belt for how many terrorists we're killing. But the cost of war project, uh, from, um, Brown University, excuse me, at the end of the war, uh, when, as you said, when Biden pulled out and everybody goes, oh God, you know, you're throwing away, the, you're giving away the store to the Taliban. And uh, it was really disgusting to see, you're right. They, of course, the response by the political establishment, uh, of course, saying that this is a blight on, uh, you know, our support for what democracy and all this. I mean, there was never anything close to a legitimate election held in Afghanistan during the entire occupation. Uh, in fact, uh, the last several years there, there was this co-presidency set up with, um, uh, with, and basically one of the, one of the guys who declared himself president was actually, I actually tried to assassinate, uh, the other president, Ghani, uh, who this guy's name was Abdullah Abdullah, but he just refused to not be, pre- they, it's that's the whole thing is absolutely crazy. So the idea that it was about democracy, uh, was ridiculous. Uh, the Pashtuns never had any real representation in the government, and all Kabul ever did was empower the worst kinds of warlords in the south and east of the country and drug lords who were all they were doing was, you know, murdering, raping, and exploiting the people of Afghanistan, uh, basically. And so that's why Kabul really didn't have any support uh, at the time. And also there was all kinds of stuff you can get into about uh, how there was not, I mean, the whole, the Afghan national army was essentially a joke. I mean, they were, they were hiring people who were just looking for, uh, a pair of shoes and, and a meal. And, uh, and they were not really committed to fighting the Taliban at all. Uh, there were, and there were several instances of attacks going on between, you know, where the Taliban would infiltrate the Afghan national army and then in the midst of training, ter- kill you know, uh, other Afghan national army soldiers in training or kill the Americans who were training them. And, uh, so yeah, th- th- there was no, uh, real popular support for this government except in, uh, you know, the very connected areas, uh, in, in, up in the North, uh, in Kabul and places like this. And so, uh, yeah, when the war, uh, collapsed or excuse me, when the, uh, when the war ended, there was uh, all where when Biden was pulling out because Donald Trump made a deal. He sent Zalmay Khalilzad to make a deal with the Taliban to pull out. And the idea was, look, if you agree to speak with the, to make it, you know, to continue talking or start talking with, uh, the president Ghani and the government in Kabul, you don't have to make a deal with them, but just talk to them. Uh, and, uh, just while we're leaving and after we leave. And then the only other thing you should do, you have to do here is make sure that you keep Al Qaeda and ISIS out of the country and that they, you made sure that they'd never launch an attack, you know, on the United States. Um, which, I mean, that's really getting back to more of this safe haven myth stuff about how Al Qaeda launched the attack from Afghanistan. They were just, they had been exiled to Afghanistan from all intents and purposes. It wasn't like it was anything special about Afghanistan. Uh, that was just some thin propaganda to, to you know, keep the occupation going. Cause it was the war cost, uh, I, I believe at this point, $2 trillion, uh, which made a lot of money for a lot of special interests. Um, 
who were getting all kinds of government contracts, not just military contractors, but people building up infrastructure can, and everything else in the Con- country. Connor, can you explain, can you do a, a summary real quick of how uh, the war costing uh, uh, that much money makes money for special interests? I know, once again, I'm kind of slow, difficult to follow. A lot of people would say, well, that doesn't make sense. It costs the American taxpayers money for us to go to war, say $2 trillion. How does that make anyone money? Could you do a summary of that real quick? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, uh, in the case of, um, in the case of, Af- uh, Afghanistan, a big part of it was sort of, you know, remaking their society. And so building up all these institutions that were going to lead to a flourishing of, uh, democracy and, and liberalism and all of this which was totally unworkable considering the partners the Americans had and the fact that the people of Afghanistan have uh, kicked out various invaders throughout history who tried to uh, conquer them at the point of a gun and remake their society from Alexander the Great to the, uh, to the British Empire to the, uh, to the Soviets, as we mentioned earlier. And anyway, so, but there was a lot of money to be made by different companies who could get contracts through the State Department and all these different NGOs who got involved, uh, building all kinds of things that never even, in some cases, schools that didn't, uh, that weren't, the people weren't even going to, just crazy things like this. But primarily, the worst part of it, uh, there was a lot of graft involved in this. Um, you know, uh, hosp- I believe uh, hospitals that uh, that uh, didn't work, and all and all kinds of other issues. But the uh, one of the uh, main uh, examples of all this, of course, is just the massive amount of money that went into the military industrial complex. And actually, you know, there was a, there were interviews called the Afghanistan papers published by the Washington post in 2019, where they did interviews with various uh, military bureaucrat, uh, bureaucrats and, and military officials involved in the war who thought they were speaking off the record with the special investigative uh, special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction who uh, for the last several years of the war documented all the waste, fraud, and abuse that was going on. And they basically told him that they knew the war couldn't be won. Uh, but, you know, the real Gareth Porter, who's a, uh, this incredible investigative reporter, has a, a great article about this. And I forget the full title, but if people just look up self-licking ice cream cone, Afghanistan, uh, I believe it was that responsible statecraft. Uh, you sh- people should read it because essentially what he says is that for various reasons, when the Americans had to pull out of uh, Iraq at the uh, in the early Obama years, at the end of 2011, the uh, one of the reasons why, because Bush had already agreed to that timeline before he left office, one of the decisions was basically that in order to compensate for that, they should double down in Afghanistan to make more money, and also for you know special interest within the military itself who wanted to get promotions for losing another war, I guess. Uh, but, uh, and, but primarily this was done really to make more money from the military industrial complex and to get more money for the Pentagon. Because I mean, actually you, you could look at, you know, Pentagon officials who were saying as, as early as the middle of the two thousands that this war was going to go on for uh, years and years and years. And it was going to take place in, you know, dozens of countries that this is the new long war we're fighting against terrorism. Uh, and, um, but Afghanistan was just essentially uh, they, them 
uh, it was a huge money-making scheme, a welfare project. And, um, but yeah, you, you know, the, the thing is basically the worst aspect of all this about American politics is the American, uh, sort of defense industry funds think tanks that are run by, or that are, that are, they fund these various think tanks that are, uh, run by hawks and in some cases former military officials who cashed who basically get a, a, a nice job at a think tank or even a defense contractor once they get out of uh you know government service uh or so-called government service and um they basically what they do is they start to promote uh wars on behalf of these special interests who stand to gain at the expense of everybody else in the country who isn't either working for Raytheon in the factory or isn't uh, actually profiting off of the sales that the company makes. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's not good for the American economy, but it does make a substantial amount of money for uh, these vested interests who have, you know, incredible sway uh, in, in DC, they call it the iron triangle, sort of the alliance between, uh, the think tanks, uh, the, uh, Pentagon and also, you know, people in Congress, like congressional aides who, if they are able to secure, uh, deals and support for these various wars, then they can count on having a nice cushy job, uh, once they leave government, uh, working for some of these, uh, military contractors. What, what about owning just, stock in like Lockheed Martin or Boeing or Raytheon? What about that? Is that, that a common thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, it gets, it's, uh, I mean, the, 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 when, when we go, when we go to war with these countries, the stocks go up. And if you look at actually, you know, what's interesting is the last, I mean, it's much more overt now in many cases than it used to be. So if you look at Mark Esper, for instance, the, uh, pen, the form, the, well, he wasn't the last, but, he was uh, one of Trump's Pentagon uh, chiefs, one of his uh, secretaries of defense. This guy was a, a lobbyist for Raytheon. The current uh, secretary of defense under Biden, Lloyd Austin, uh, sat on the board of Raytheon before he left uh, to become, before he left to become, uh, you know, the head of the, uh, before he led the Pentagon. And so one of the things about, uh, you know, for instance, the war in Ukraine going on now is, uh, and I, I, you know what, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the figures, but the increase, uh, you'd have to look at what the overall market growth was in order to see, you know, to account for all this. But there were, I mean, drastic increases in the stock prices of, uh, particularly like the big defense contractors like Lockheed Martin, uh, after, uh, Putin, uh, invaded Ukraine, which was, uh, and you, I think there's a very strong case to make. Uh, there is a very strong case to make that that, that war was um, provoked by U.S. and NATO policies. Not that to absolve Putin of any responsibility uh, for any war crimes or anything taking place in Ukraine, but just that there, and it's becoming more and more clear that this was, basically they are trying to replicate sort of their dirty war in Afghanistan in the 80s with, um, the Russians now by drawing them into a war uh, in Ukraine where they can bleed them out there for a long time. But, you know, there have been meetings with uh, at the Pentagon with the Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks where they have discussed with the leaders of the main defense contractors how we're going to keep this war going for years and years. And you see that um, in uh, the, you know, if you look at uh, the 
you know, they always talk about the Javelin anti-tank missiles and the Stinger missiles and the Javelin anti-tank missiles are made by, it's a joint project with Raytheon and, and, and Lockheed. And I believe Raytheon makes the Stinger missile by itself. And, uh, they're making so much money off of this. There's even quotes from quarterly earnings meetings, uh, to your point where they talk about how, you know, this is going to be fantastic because all of these NATO countries are sending weapons over to Ukraine from their own weapon stocks. So they're going to need those to be replenished. A lot of these other countries in Eastern Europe are sending over old Soviet supplies and they're going to need to be restocked and resupplied with new American weapons. Uh, and of course, uh, so he was saying basically like we stand to see a significant benefit from all this. And actually, you know, you can read when you read articles about this and see the quotes from these quarterly earnings calls when you hear the CEOs of these various companies like Raytheon or Lockheed. It's quite interesting and striking to see the way they talk about all this because, you know, we might look at something like the war in Yemen and be abhorred at what we, we find out about it, about, you know, say 263,900 children under five being bombed or starved to death, according to the UN. But they look at it like when, when the Houthis after, you know, 400,000 people have been killed eventually, like in the beginning of this year, retaliate with some, uh, you know, drone attacks on, uh, on the, uh, on some oil facilities in the UAE. And then the UAE demands that the Americans back them even more and that there'd be a significant response to this. And we saw, of course, a huge escalation in the war at the end of 2021, the beginning of this year, uh, by the Saudis before the ceasefire. Um, the, when you read the quarterly earnings calls, they go, well, this is great. This is great. We're going to, we're going to, there's because the trouble, the, the way they talk about it, they'll be like, well, with the trouble going on in Yemen and tensions in the South China Sea, and of course, uh, the war in, uh, in Ukraine, we were going to see some significant, uh, benefits here, uh, in the coming year. And, and so they are not, um, you know, shy about saying all this. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think, uh, to your point, enough people, well, I don't know. You know, I'll tell you the truth. I think that there is more of a, an awareness about all this. There just seems to be some ap some apathy, but it's also because the American people sort of see uh, this as, uh, I think, and I think this will change uh, here, hopefully in the short term, but as some sort of like insur insurmountable power structure that can't really be challenged. Um you know, uh, but, but they are absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right. That is the primary interest. And that's one of the reasons why the war in Afghanistan is always, uh, that it kept going. It was going on for so long, you know, Trump wanted to leave, but ultimately, uh, sent 10,000 more troops after being pressured by his Pentagon, uh, and then, and people on the national security council and his national security advisor, because they're all, you know, corrupt and they know the war, they're losing the war, but they just tell them you don't want to be looked at as the, you know, an American president loses a war that's going to blow all your political capital. You'll uh, be responsible for anything bad that ever happens there in, in the future. And uh, so he double, you know, he sent 10,000 more troops and set records for all the airstrikes. Just all did, all that did was make the Taliban stronger and kill more civilians. I think he dropped 15,000 bombs on Afghanistan between 2018 and 2019. Finally, he and Zalmay Khaliazad, the neoconservative uh, policy advisor, cut this deal with the Taliban. And, uh, you know, Biden was supposed to leave in May, but kept postponing and postponing. And then eventually when they left in August, uh, the Taliban, you know, took the country, I believe Kabul fell in like 11 days. 
Uh, and, um, and so, you know, the interesting thing though, about all of that to me, especially for right now is the people of Afghanistan are still at war with the United States, not because of anything they're doing, not because of anything the Taliban is even doing, but the American people, or excuse me, the American government have frozen the assets of the former Afghan government, which are located in central banks. uh, And they have continued to impose sanctions on the Taliban. So what this does is it doesn't allow them to get any liquidity into their economy and it prevents them from uh, feeding their people. So right now, according to the World Food Program, uh, I think, uh, well, these numbers might be a few months old, but they were saying that 22 and a half million people are in danger of, uh, you know, uh, facing starvation and uh, several, several million people are, are, could face famine conditions. And um, there's been all kinds of, there were reports early this year, I believe that uh, the mortality rate had gone, you know, way up. I think there was something like 13,000 newborns uh, who had died. Uh, it, the the uh, humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan could arguably here get worse than it was even during the war. Um, and the reason for this is just because the Americans are sore losers and they, they refuse to, uh, recognize the Taliban. Uh, and, and nobody, hardly anybody talks about this, but what is, uh, you know, most disgusting about it, I would say is just because the argument that, well, it's, we we were fighting the war because we wanted to protect women and girls and build these, uh, and build, send girls to school and, and we have to, you know, the Afghan people deserve freedom and democracy and all this stuff. They don't really, they don't believe any of that. They're starving those women and girls to death right now. Uh, and uh, when Lee Fang, this, uh, who's a reporter from The Intercept, goes to, um, you know, Washington, D.C. and tries to talk to senators about all this, there's a great video of this. They all just either refuse to talk to him or they tell him that they basically support the policy. And uh, so there's just no, there is no, uh, they are absolutely lying about their humanitarian concerns uh, with Afghanistan and, and, and really any of these countries. Um, and uh, it's, it's just been absolutely devastating. But the thing is in Afghanistan right now, they are absolutely at economic war uh, with the people there and the, hum- the humanitarian consequences uh, are and will be uh, devastating. Connor, uh, I appreciate everything you have shared with us on today's episode, specifically about the uh, one of the longest wars uh, that just ended recently, but of course, Afghanistan. Um, I look forward to us chatting again sometime soon. We can cover, I mean, we can go on and on with so many different rabbit holes within the, the world of foreign policy as it relates to the United States. Before we wrap things up, could you do a very brief summary of why, in your opinion, I'm assuming it's important that people listening contact their congressmen and they let them know that they want to end the Saudi, the United States-backed Saudi war against the people of Yemen and, and why... In your opinion, that's important, how they can do that. And I guess just a brief overview of maybe why 
what's going on in Yemen right now is so important. And then, of course, you know, any plugs, any any ways anyone listening can learn more about any of this stuff, follow you on social media, all that stuff, please. Absolutely. So, um, okay, so br- right now you can call uh, 1-83-STOP-WAR. And these are, uh, Ye- these are anti-war and Yemen activists who have, uh, they, it, actually, if you, there's a website with the same name, I believe it's 1-83-STOP-WAR. If you just Google that, you'll find it. Um, and they have a, a basic, they have a script that people can read when they call their congressman. They'll connect you. I think you give them your zip code, uh, and then they will connect you to, uh, your house representatives in your district and also, uh, your senators. And, um, you can please tell them because, uh, representative DeFazio has introduced this house joint resolution 87, which commands an end to us support for the war in Yemen particularly maintenance, uh, logistics, intelligence support, et cetera. Uh, and uh, they're using it They're You know, they're, this is a war powers resolution. So this is very important because this is an uncon- this is an illegal unconstitutional war. Uh, I think um, one of the most important things you can do, uh, you know, when I call to be perfectly honest, I, I well, I don't vote, but I, I do say to people, you know, I uh, support you in the last, I don't know how wise this is, but I sometimes do it. I tell them that I supported them in the previous election. However, this is a deal breaker. This is the most important issue to me. I know it is for a lot of other people as well. So please do the right thing here and support an end of this illegal war. Now, if you're talking to a Democrat, John Yarmouth here in Louisville, Kentucky, who, I mean, I've heard has arguably some of the worst foreign policy intentions. Okay. Yeah. So if you're talking to a, yeah, unfortunately I've dealt with certain, you know, uh, out here in Arizona, uh, politicians who I just don't think can be changed, who can be swayed, but it doesn't matter. Just, just flood their phone, their phone lines and scare the hell out of them basically. And, um, I think, I think that would be a really good idea because, uh, you can always say to the Democrats that look, cause Biden lied, Biden came into office and said, I'm going to end all support for offensive operations and relevant arms sales. He ended up selling more than a billion dollars in weapons to Saudi Arabia and supported the war. Um, you know, he lied. He's, I'm going to basically in April, it came out that they were still providing maintenance to the Saudi warplanes, which in the, in the absence of that, uh, Pentagon assistance, the, the Saudi air force would be grounded and the war would end. Now, uh, what I mean, and so, but, but you can use his own rhetoric against him, right? You can say that Joe Biden, you know, president Biden wants to end the war. He just needs our support. Right. And so that's the way you push it with the Democrats and um, and 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 just say, you know, there's some vested interests that want to keep the war going. But we need to support our president here. This is a very important issue. Uh, It's the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Um, Now, with Republicans, I think we should say uh, that, you know, this is. um, This is an America first policy, uh, if that's if it's that kind of a right winger that you're talking to. Uh, or just say that, you know, this is an unconstitutional war. Uh, we don't need to be policing the world and just blame it all on the Democrats because it's Obama's war at the end of the day. Um, and, uh, and so you can just, you could just say that, I mean, forget Trump's involvement and just talk about how Biden hasn't ended it. And it's, uh, it's putting us in danger because it's, uh, empowered Al Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula and ISIS, uh, in Yemen. And we shouldn't be fighting on their side. Uh, just because the Saudis want to. Now, 
uh, again, American politics is very ugly. And uh, one time I called and made a call to a congressman about uh, this issue and, and got a response that wasn't very encouraging. But the point is, is that what we need to do is the ones who can be changed. Uh, there is a list, by the way, on that website uh, that it'll tell you who's voted for, or you know what, it might be one of the, there's might be another site that does it, but I believe it is the same one uh, where they will tell you actually who, what congressmen have already signed on for this legislation to support it and who are not decided. And, uh, but regardless, I think the most important thing to do is to just call and call and call. It takes literally five minutes to do it every day. And um, I, I think we owe it to ourselves and to the people of Yemen to really give this a shot. Uh, because, uh, th this is the war in Yemen is basically the Holocaust of our time. I mean, uh, they say 400,000 people have died according to the UN, but it could be, it's probably much worse than that. I mean, the country was blockaded for since March of 2015 and they bombed everything. They bombed hospitals, schools, they bombed bridges, they bombed roads, they bombed marketplaces, they bombed funerals, they bombed weddings, they bombed sewage facilities, they bombed the waterworks, uh, everything. And so what they caused the worst cholera epidemic in recorded history with over, uh, at least was reported over a million uh, cases. Um, uh, we've seen uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, we, who knows even how bad the epidemics of COVID uh, were in Yemen. There were uh, all kinds of people who died simply because they couldn't get out of the country because the airport had been bombed and there was a blockade uh, on, on all ports, including the airport in Sanaa. So, but now there is a ceasefire uh, because I think, to be perfectly honest with you, I think the Saudis want to end that war. They've uh, expended a lot of money and a lot of resources on fighting it when they really can't win. Um, and uh, in the meantime, uh, I think what was really disgraceful was if you read uh, Trita Parsi and Anel Shaleen, who are great writers I read often at Res uh, Responsible Statecraft and the Quincy Institute, they interviewed uh, high-level uh, 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 Senate staffers who uh, said that they had spoken with people uh, from the White House, if I remember correctly, on the sources. But uh, basically, the uh, the Saudis were looking for a way out, and the Amer and Biden's policy was, well, let's take the gloves off and give them hell, and then that way you can leave with and save some face. And so that is what happened. They absolutely ramped up uh, the uh, airstrikes on Yemen in the beginning of this year, in the end of December. Like I said, uh, seeing some of the worst. Uh, the most bombing that's been seen in the war in years. Wow. Um, but yeah, but now there is a ceasefire. It's been going on for three months. The airport, there are flights coming into the airport, uh, in and out of the airport. Uh, there's been easing at the main port of Hodeida for Northern Yemen. Uh, they are seeing uh, more fuel being delivered than before. And they're getting closer to what they actually need to support themselves. Um, but, uh, the, the, I mean, but anything could happen right now, especially with Biden headed to the Middle East, mm -hmm. he's going to go make a He's going to give the Saudis and the Emiratis and Israel, um, who are always lurking in the background here, which is why I focus on, um, you know, what's going on with Iran, especially right now, but it's very critical for Yemen too. There's a big interest in building sort of a Middle Eastern, uh, NATO style alliance led by the U S uh, and uh, they want to use that, you know, principally against Iran. 
but you know, it could be used to, you know, the Israelis have a, a strong interest in stirring up trouble and, uh, in Yemen because their, their propaganda is that the Houthis are Iranian proxies. That's not the case, but that is a big part of the propaganda behind this war. And, um, Okay. So, but the important thing is that they installed a dictator who was elected in a one man, uh, he was the only guy on the ballot. Uh, and, uh, he, after the Houthis took the capital in late 2014, when he refused to step down, uh, backed by the, uh, a former president, uh, he, um, this guy's hotty fled to Riyadh and has lived on house arrest virtually ever since they are no longer trying to install him in power. They have something called the Presidential Leadership Council, which is made up of an anti-Houthi coalition. But, I mean, since this decision was made, they have there has been talks and there has been this ceasefire. So there is a real chance now that they have dropped that uh, okay. objective and that there is the ceasefire and we have this bill in Congress. So there is a real opportunity. So please make that call. Just annoy, uh, just, you know, go and read that uh script if you have to, but I'm sure a lot of the audience already knows about the war in Yemen okay. and uh, you can go on there and just, uh, you know, call them up and, and let them know because uh, a lot of people are doing it right now and it has a huge impact. I mean, a lot of these house staffers say that they're trying to convince uh, their representative, their bosses to, to vote the right way here. And they say that the phone calls absolutely make a significant difference okay and connor so, um and connor on twitter yeah. you are freeman at freeman's mind 96 also people listening can access your your writings at the libertarian institute uh, dot org uh, occasionally for antiwar.com i assume that's a summary of how they can continue to follow you and to learn more yeah absolutely i'll just say that uh uh, yeah, all my writings you can find it at Libertarian Institute, and virtually everything I write ends up in the viewpoints at uh, antiwar.com. I co-host Conflicts of Interest with Kyle Anzalone uh, and uh, and Will Porter as well. Um, and uh, our show can be found at Libertarian Institute on all podcast platforms and on YouTube, and uh, it's also in the blog at uh, antiwar.com as well. So uh, yes, thank you very much, and 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 yeah, Freeman's Mind ninety six on Twitter. I appreciate it very much, Kelly, and look forward to doing it again soon. Sounds great. Connor Freeman, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for tuning into the Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon.